So we're going to continue in our series, Imperfect Heroes. And I am so excited about this series. Today, we come to the character of Moses. And most of you know Moses' story. But there are, you know, we, we attract a lot of people that don't have a lot of church background. So I'm going to take just a minute and tell you kind of the big sweeping story of Moses. Or call him Mo, I don't care, whatever, whatever you want to call him. And uh, so Moses' story began with a call from God. And uh, he, God called him to deliver the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And so Moses was minding his own business, and, and God gave him this call. And you know the story of how Israel actually even got there. It, they, you know, they ended up uh, moving down to that area because of a famine in the land. And eventually a king rose up that didn't know them and enslaved them. And now there's millions of them. And uh, God's people cry out to God and say, God, this is absolutely unacceptable. Help us. And so God raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And uh, if you know the story, he comes along. The first time he comes, uh, he takes things into his own hands and, and it didn't go well for him. The second time, it was an amazing story. God was, God's hand was upon him. And, of course, Pharaoh didn't want to let all these Egyptian or these Israelite slaves go. I mean, he had, a, he had a, an amazing business deal going on with no market or no, no price for the labor. And so he didn't want to let the children of Israel go. And so Moses comes along and, and tells him, let my people go. And you probably know the story, saw the movie where, you know, there's ten plagues that are given. And every one of those ten plagues is a judgment against one of the gods of Egypt. And eventually, there was the, God, the, the death of the firstborn. And, uh, and so here's what happened, is that God instructed Israel to take the blood of a lamb and put it on the four corners of, their, of their, the entrance to their door. And when the death angel would pass over, then that house would be saved. There would be no death in that house. But any house that didn't have that mark was going to be subject to this 10th plague. And of, and of course, all of Egypt lost their firstborn that night. And eventually Pharaoh unwillingly said, okay, I give up. And he let the children of Israel go. And, you know, they, they, they you know, get their belongings and they, they leave in a hurry. And uh, there's millions of them by this time. And so uh, about halfway through this process, Pharaoh decides, you know, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. So he gets his armies and he chases after Israel and they're at the Red Sea and the, the, his armies are, are breathing down on him. God parts the Red Sea at the hand of Moses. This is a dynamic leader here, right? I mean, I, when's the last time you've done that? I mean, I don't think you've ever done that. So this is a dynamic leader and God's power is upon him. So the children of Israel cross over on dry ground and uh, the, the Egyptians chase after uh, him or them, and God waits until they get in the middle and, and drowns all of his army. And that's the story. And now Moses is on the other side in a desert with millions of people with no food. And now Moses' leadership begins, and I'm going to tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, it was, a, it was a nightmare from the very beginning of how to lead. I mean, it was like herding cats. These people did not want to go. They did not like what, they did not, not like the food that God provided. They didn't like the water that God provided. They didn't like anything. 
And yet here's Moses out there in this barren desert leading them around. And they go around in circles for 40 years because they refused to enter into the promised land. God wanted them to go in, but they had no faith and they didn't want to do it. And so there you have, that's, you know, that's kind of the big story backdrop. I didn't tell you all the details, but that's the big story of Moses and his, his lineage. And so here we go to this morning. And like every major character in the Old Testament, they always point to Jesus. So just mark that down in your head. Every time you're reading the Old Testament and you come across a character like Daniel or, or Joseph or, or Moses as in our story, they all point to Jesus. So in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, we're going to ask the question, how does Moses point to Jesus? And then we're going to talk about his flaws. And by the way, you're going to be surprised at Moses' flaws. You know, he's a person that put his pants on just like you and I. And he had the same struggles in life that you and I have. And uh, so you'll be surprised at what he struggled with. But in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, this is what the Bible says. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Just stop there for a second. He's quoting, the author here is quoting Exodus 18. He's quoting Exodus 18, verse 15. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. And uh, why? Because this prophet that's going to be raised up is now declared to be Jesus. So Moses pointed to Jesus. Moses was a prophet like Jesus. So the question then is, how was Moses like Jesus? Let's start there, and then we'll work to some of the really good stuff. So first of all, this is Moses' story. Moses was, he came to his people the first time, and he was rejected the first time took things into his own hand, killed an Egyptian, didn't work out, fled to the backside of the desert and was there for 40 years or so. And God comes out and gets him, rescues him. And the second time Moses comes, the people respond. So is that story familiar? Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came to his own and his own did not receive him, rejected him. But guess what? He's coming again. And the second time that Jesus comes, all of Israel is going, according to Zechariah 14, all of Israel is going to turn to her Messiah. I mean, there's going to be a mass conversion of, is, of Isra Israelis, and uh, it is a very powerful moment in history. And uh, so he is like Jesus in that he came to the first time, was rejected, came the second time, and now is received. Then... He is a mediator of a covenant. Moses was a mediator of a covenant, and Jesus was a mediator of a covenant. Now, before you turn me off, like, oh, covenant stuff. Listen to me very carefully. What I'm about to explain to you is something you need to know about your faith and how to live it out every day. So, you know, keep those, keep those wheels turning up there. Listen carefully about what I'm about to say. To understand Moses and Jesus, you have to understand that in the Middle East there were two mountains. These two mountains represented two covenants. One mountain was called Mount Sinai. You probably heard of it, right? Yes? Mount Sinai is where Moses went up and got the law. That's the first mountain. And listen to the language that is used around describing this particular mountain. Mount Sinai represents the Old Covenant. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 21, it is described with words like these, a flame of fire. What does a flame of fire do? It devours. 
darkness and gloom, earth-shaking rumble, and, ear and an ear-piercing trumpet. That's how this mountain was described. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, it says, if an animal touches the mountain, it is as good as dead. They were afraid to move. The Israelites were afraid to move. Even Moses was terrified of this mountain. He went up and got the Ten Commandments, but he was terrified of this. This was the Old Covenant, and in the Old Covenant, this Old Covenant was based on rules and regulations. And by the way, understand this, God never intended to save Israel through that law. That law's purpose was to get the Israel to understand how broken she really was. It was always through faith that God was going to save Israel. So the message of Sinai, the message of the Old Covenant, is stay away no trespassing, keep your distance. That's the message of Sinai. There's not much grace in it. There's not much mercy in it. That's the message. Now we come to another mountain in the Middle East, and this mountain is called Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a picture of the new covenant. So listen to these words. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion, to a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a great place. And listen to these. Just think about that. Put your mind set on that. that. And let me read the rest of the verse to you. And the, to the countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering, you have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself who is the judge over, judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. So this is the new covenant. This is so much different than the old covenant. Then watch this. Verse 24 says, you have come to Jesus. Jesus is the new covenant. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and, and, and people and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness. Now stop there. Most people that come through our doors for the very first time at Grace Church have an idea about God. Most of the time uninformed as to what the Bible says. So let's talk about, and this is what most people think that they should do. Most people think somehow, some way, I should probably go to church because what I really need to do is clean my life up so that I can somehow, some way, find favor with God. That's why most people come through our doors. And uh, so look at me when I say this to you. Bzz, wrong answer. Try door number three. Because what the Bible says is that there is absolutely no way in this new covenant that I could ever clean my life up enough that would be acceptable to God. So what I do is I bring my filth, my, my sin, my, I come just like I am. I come with all of my hang-ups and shortcomings and hot messes. I come just like I am. And it's that moment that I come like that, that I am met by God. And the very first thing that God does in my life is offers and grants forgiveness to my, for my sin. That's the new covenant. That is the new covenant. And it is vastly different than what you read in the old covenant. It is very distinct, and it is a very powerful thing. So if I were to describe to you this mountain that represents this new covenant, I would use about four, five, six words, but I'm gonna just going to limit it to a few words here today. The first word that I would use to describe this relationship that we have in this new covenant before God is the idea of access. Think about that. I get access to God 24-7. I don't need a priest. 
I don't need to clean my life up. I have this access to God. I can come to him 24 hours, you know, 24 hours a day. I don't have to make an appointment with God. God is always listening. And, you know, what's funny to me is this. This is so funny to me. I don't know why it is, but I find humor in a lot of things. So this is funny to me. People oftentimes will text me or, or email me and say, Pastor Dan, could you, pray, you, could you pray for my son? And I'm glad you're doing that. I really am. But here's what you need to know. My prayer is no better than yours. It is not. My prayer is no better than yours. You have access to God. In fact, the Bible calls you a king and a priest unto God. That's what the Bible calls those who have been born again. So you have this access and never take that for granted. I mean, that is something that is amazing, that this God, that if in the old covenant, if, if somebody made a wrong move, they were toast. This God, this God now grants to you and I access and favor and desire. I mean, he desires, us to, he desires to be with us in this relationship, and it is so powerful. And this access that we have is not gained or lost by your own personal merits. I don't lose this access because I sinned last week. I don't lose this access because somehow, someway, I'm not living up to the standard that God has. I know that my life falls short of that. I mean, come on. Let's just be real. Let's, let me just talk to you real. You, you've done some sin this week, haven't you? Come on. At least in your mind. You know, you you know, you've probably been angry with a brother. or you've been, you know, I'm just saying, and you, don't have to do, you don't have to clean any of that up. You come just like you are. You have this access that is amazing. And you don't have to merit it. You don't keep it by meriting it. And you don't earn it by meriting it. And it's based on simply this. Listen to this carefully. This access before God... This kingdom of priests to God is based on one simple concept. It's based on who you know. If you know Jesus, you have access. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have access. That's what the Bible says. It is based on relationships. So let's just dig a bit deeper in that concept. So following the Civil War, a dejected Confederate soldier was sitting outside the grounds of the White House. He was trying to gain access to the president, President Lincoln. A young boy approached him to inquire why he was so sad. And the guy said, well, uh, I was unjustly deprived of certain lands in the South following the war, and I'd just like to talk to the president. Maybe he can do something about it. And, uh, and every, time I, every time I've tried to get in, I've been denied access. They put their bayonets over the door and tell me to back off. And, and so the young boy said, hey, follow me. So they, as they approached the entrance, he walked right up to the entrance, and the guard stood at attention. They put their bayonets back. They opened the door and saluted the boy as he walked through the door. That boy's name was Tad Lincoln. His dad was the president of the United States, and he had access to the White House based on who he knew. That's how it is with you. You want to be a name dropper? Tell people who you know. I know Jesus, man. You got that? Can you top that? I know Jesus. I have access to the throne of grace because I know Jesus. That is so rich and so powerful and so good. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. One clap right down here. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. That was great. So here we go. 
There's another word that I would describe when it comes to this, this mountain called Zion. There's another word that I would describe this relationship to God, and it is the idea of joy. It's the idea of joy, and uh, it is so powerful. Joy is it's such a commodity that when you have it, you never want to be without it. Joy is unbelievably good. Better than happiness, better than anything you can imagine. When you have joy in your life, nothing is better than that. Nothing is better than joy. So I had the great privilege of being one of the first Westerners to go into a secret city in the Ukraine in the early 1980s. So I was invited to go, and I said, heck yes, I'll do it. And uh, we went, I went with a team of about 40 people, and literally... Uh, these Ukrainians, we were, I was, this is sad, I was one of the first Americans they'd ever talked to or seen. And, and uh, so, I mean, that's bad on them, sad for them. But here's what I noticed about them. I noticed that when we went into the city, there was a city that we went into, it was probably about 15,000, 20,000 people. I noticed that when I went into the city that there was no joy on their faces at all. They had strict rule. The crime rate in that city was nearly zero because if you got caught stealing, they just cut your hand off. You know, they, you know they, they ruled that nation with a rod of iron. This was a secret city. It's not, it wasn't even on a map in those days. It's, the city's name was Sveslovask. And it was, the, it was you know, if you go, if, today if you go to Sveslovask, you'll see this monument. With one of, my name is on that monument. And we were the first Westerners that came across and into this secret city. And uh, we went with the intent of telling these people for the first time about the Jesus that I know. And literally, nearly the whole count, town came to Christ. They, uh, they did. They had never heard they had, never, they had never heard anything like this before. And it was, you know, I had this, I, you know, I wasn't planning on telling you this. I didn't tell you the first service. I had this interpreter and, uh, you know, he told me, I was there for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, and he said, the first day that I met you, I hated you. <laughs> I have that effect on a lot of people. I'm just saying, I'm good, I'm good at making people hate me. It's, it's okay. It's all right. You know, but he faithfully interpreted every week. He said, you know, after about three or four days, of in listening to what you were saying, I stopped hating you, but I didn't like you. <laughs> and then about a week and a half into it, I started liking you. And then he said, and today, I believe in your God. That, he went from unbelief to belief. That is the power of the gospel. And what I saw when these people came to Christ, all of a sudden, their faces lit up. There was joy because the rod of iron cannot produce joy. It doesn't matter whether it comes from Moses or from the Soviet Union. It doesn't matter. It is, that cannot produce joy. It will never produce joy. Only Jesus and his love can produce the kind of joy that the Bible has for you and I. Joy. It's a powerful thing. And then there's something else that I would describe this new covenant with. The idea of this sense of belonging. You know how important to know that you belong to someone, that you belong somewhere. That is gold. When you don't have it, it is, it is treacherous to think about not having this sense of belonging inside of our life. When I was in the fourth grade, 
I can remember back vividly that in those days, I don't know how they do it today, but in those days at recess, you know, you, what you would do is you'd, have, you'd select two captains and those two captains would pick one by one from the best to the least in terms of athletic ability who was going to be on their team. And my prayer every time was don't let me be the last. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy that they say, oh, we had to take him last week. You get him this week. I didn't want to be that guy. You know why? Because I'm wired with a sense of belonging. And so are you. Belonging is so powerful. And when we come to Christ, that belonging is fulfilled in him. And it is good. It is beautiful. It is a powerful thing to think about. And then there's the idea, the last word that I would use to describe this new covenant is the idea of wholeness. Even though I'm still broken, I still have a wholeness about me. And I can't explain it. It's a miraculous thing. It's powerful. It is, it is certainly serves me well. And now we go back to Moses for a minute. Moses was like most of the heroes from the Old Testament. Moses had a fatal flaw. And so let's talk about that fatal flaw. And then we're going to get to you for, in just a second because I'm going to suggest that just like Moses had a fatal flaw, Almost everybody in this auditorium probably has the same fatal flaw or a fatal flaw that, like Moses would have. So it may sound like a small detail, but the shape of an airplane's window is extremely important. Have you ever noticed when you sit on the window seat that they're never square? They're always in an oval shape. There's a reason for that because in the 1950s, they, you know, when, when all of a sudden the space industry, uh, the aircraft industry got off the ground and people began to start taking commercial flights, they all made planes with square windows. And you know what started happening? They started unexpectedly breaking up in the middle of flight and crashing because they were not aerodynamic in, the, in their nature. And so they did a study and they found out that the reason is, is that when you put a square window up, there is a point of contact. There's one point that if enough pressure is applied, it just breaks the window and then pretty soon the whole plane is breaking up. That's how it kind of worked out in this country. And then what happened is they began to say, okay, let's make different kinds of windows. And so they did and voila, here we are in 2021 and we all look out the window with a oval look. And normally we don't crash. That is, that's in progress, right? <laughs> so when you think about that, that window represented a corner that had a weak spot in it. And enough pressure applied would create a crash. Now let's talk about you for just a second. To be human, and I think you're all human, right? <laughs> to be human is to have weak spots. That's what we are. That's who we are. Every single one of us has a design flaw because of the curse, made whole in Jesus, but still have issues that we're all struggling with and facing. And we are prone in those areas, if, I, if they're left unnamed and undealt with, then I'm headed for a crash. When I just ignore the flaws in my life, when I ignore them in my marriage, I'm headed for a crash. When I ignore them in my relationships, I'm headed for a crash. When I ignore them as a parent, I'm going to crash. When I ignore them in every area of life, if I ignore the weak spots in my life, I'm going to have a, a, a crash. So with that in mind, 
you have a weak spot. Let's talk about Moses's for just a second. Moses's imperfection, what was that? He was a very, underline the word very, impatient leader. Moses didn't handle complaints well from people he was supposed to lead. And you can see that all the way through the journey in the desert. And even when he was called, when God first called him, and he, he took things into his own hands, went out and said, okay, I'll do this myself. I don't need God. So he went out and killed an Egyptian on his own. And then he had to flee to the backside of the desert, and God eventually had to go get him, give him a, another call, and the second time worked. But here's the deal. Moses, all through his life, had this he was just an, an imperfect leader, and specifically, he was an impatient leader. So let's get to the end of Moses' life. He's been out in the desert for 40 years. He's frustrated with these people. They are like herding cats. They are, they are rebellious. You know, you say, go this way, they're going to go that way. That's who he was leading, and he was growing very, very impatient with that. So there is this rock. You can read this. I'm not making it up. There is this rock that followed them around wherever they went. We read in the New Testament that that rock was Jesus himself, that that rock was Christ. And we see the analogy that in the New Testament, when we come to Jesus, we get this living water that gushes out all over us and in us. But in that day, it was the source of their water. That's how they, that's how they drank. They were in a desert. There wasn't many springs in a desert. So they depended upon this rock. And so God instructed Moses on this day in this particular time, which was different than sometimes. He instructed Moses very specifically to just speak to the rock and water will come out of it. And you know what Moses did? Moses, in his impetuousness, grabbed his staff and struck the rock. Now, water still came out. And the people of Israel were drank that day. But here's what happened. As a result of that particular sin, of that particular impetuous decision, Moses, Moses didn't get to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. That was his mission from the very beginning. Deliver them into the promised land. Moses did not get to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. In fact, God himself buried Moses somewhere. That's what, the, that's what the Bible says. And so, listen to me carefully. This is all good stuff. You couldn't, you couldn't make this stuff up. So, who did lead the children of Israel into the promised land? There is this dude by the name of Yeshua. The English pronunciation of that word is Joshua, and it is also translated Jesus. So, instead of Moses... Instead of the law and what is represented on Mount Sinai, instead of that, Yeshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of what God does in our life. And uh, so now we've talked about Moses' fatal flaw, and it was fatal. I mean, could you imagine that you had trained all of your life for this one mission, and out of just a stupid mistake, out of pressure, you get that you have to forfeit that, that right to lead the children of Israel. So let me ask you this question. What is your flaw? What is your flaw? I've got, you know, as I was thinking, when as I was preparing this message and I was thinking about what my flaw is, I couldn't limit it to under five. 
You know, it was just a list of things that I go, oh, yeah, that, ooh, <laughs> ooh. And I'm sure my wife would agree with, and she'd probably go, yeah, 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 that's a big one. That's a big one. So, but now let's talk about you. What is your flaw? I want you to name it in your mind. I'm going to tell you when one of mine is just to get, you know, just to start. I'll start. Here's what my flaw, one of my flaws is, is that I also am an impetuous leader. I don't have a lot of patience with people. And when, you know, and it bites me sometimes. And fortunately for me, I'm, I'm wise enough to put people around me that say constantly to me, hey, slow down. Hey, hey, slow down. I think we should, have you thought about this? Uh, yeah, maybe, shh, no, I don't want to think about that. You know what I mean? But I, I put people around me that slow me down because I like to run. I like to run out ahead of God sometimes. That's my fatal flaw. And my prayer is it doesn't bite me someday where I, I forfeit something that God wants me to do. I forfeit the right of being able to do that. I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to forfeit that. But that flaw could allow me not to be able to do something spectacular for God if it goes unchecked and unnamed. So I've named it. I've named it. I've confessed it to God as sin. What is yours? You don't have to say it out loud right here. I'll, in the lobby, would be fine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Made you smile. But do you, do you have one? Shake your head at me. Do you have one in mind? You have a flaw in mind, and you know it bites you from time to time. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. May, I don't know what yours are. I know what mine are. And uh, I'm just simply saying, if I don't name it and confess it, then I give the evil one power over it. And that's, what's, that's why it's so important for you to listen to what I'm saying this isn't just, oh, I'm doing that time under Pastor Dan. I'm teaching you something that is so critically important for you to hear because Satan will put pressure on your flaws because his goal is to get you to fall. And so if you, go, if you don't name it and confess it, your flaw, then you at some time will get eaten alive with that flaw. That's why a lot of, you just look around in our culture, there's a lot of people that don't, they crash, don't they? There's a lot of people in our culture that just crash because they've never dealt with their flaw or flaws. They've never named it, confessed it, and allowed people to hold them accountable around them. So with that in mind, you've named it. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell God what that sin is. Agree with him that it's wrong. This flaw is wrong, God. This is, I, I don't want this to bite me. And you do that as many times as it, as it takes in the course of a day. You just keep naming it. But here's what, the last thing I want you to hear me say. And this is so important. Because I have access, joy, belonging, wholeness, it gives me the freedom to be, and because I am cemented into this new covenant and I have access to God, it gives me the freedom to be transparent with God with my flaws. But listen to this very carefully. Even though I admit my flaw, I don't focus on my flaw. I don't focus on it. Let's go back to the window. You don't focus on the fact that that window is oval, do you? Or if it was a square window, you just look out the window. You acknowledge it's there. You take power away from it. But here's what you have to learn to do. You have to learn to focus on Jesus. You focus past your flaw. 
You acknowledge that it's there, but you focus on Jesus. Because I don't want to let my flaws limit what God wants to do in my life. I don't, if, I, if I'm focusing on my flaws, I'm going to let, God, I'm going to let Satan limit what I can do. Because I'm going to get stuck if I focus on my flaws. So stop focusing on them. Focus on Jesus. Acknowledge your flaws. Move to Jesus. That's the pattern of the new covenant. Does that make sense to you? So we're going to practice that. Robbie, you here? This is my best friend. He's coming, he's coming up on stage, and he's going to help us practice this. I'm going to pray, get out of his way, and, uh, and he's going to lead us in a process of the right focus for our lives. Shall we do that? Father, thank you for this day, and may your spirit use my words today any way he sees fit. In Jesus' name, amen.